Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Welcome to the Everyday Nonviolence Podcast. I'm Diane Sandberg, your host for this episode. My guest is Cindy Suplik. Cindy is a writer and presenter on the topic of mental illness and knows a lot about this subject because she has lived with bipolar disorder for most of her life. In this episode, we'll talk with Cindy about her experience with mental illness and her interactions with police and how she's sharing her story to help create better understanding for those living with mental illness. Cindy, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. So you experienced your first episode with mental illness at quite a young age. How young were you? And can you tell us about what happened? Well, I was 13 years old and I had just come from showering in the gym to find bloody panties in my locker. And I shrieked, these can't be mine. I was whisked to the school nurse's office and then the ER. It was my first panic attack over puberty. A few months later, I started feigning limping so I wouldn't have to go to school, and I didn't wash my hair for a month. My first depression. It felt like drowning, but everyone else was breathing. Later in my 30s, I self-medicated with alcohol to tamp down the mania and anxiety, and eventually I crossed the line into addiction. And it wasn't until you were in your 30s that you got your first official diagnosis, was it? And learned that mental illness had a history with your family? Yes, that's true. In my late 20s, I had um, been fired from a job. And after several months of therapy, my psychologist asked if there was any mental illness in the family. Well, I knew my mother had crying jags. But I had to pry it out of my father that she had been diagnosed with bipolar and her brother with schizophrenia. Her father was a World War I flying ace, but was noted for bouts of reckless behavior. That's a bipolar trait. So he was suspect as well. His diary recounts how he was laying in a hotel bed in Paris and shot out the overhead lights on a lark. So I became the third generation of bipolar disorder, and my youngest daughter became the fourth. And as a young woman, what was it like growing up in that environment? It came from my mother. Uh, She certainly had the good attributes of bipolar, the kind of enthusiasm that we all have in the creativity. Those are two bipolar traits. She was passionate about Girl Scouts and was a leader for 21 years. Later in life, she finished her undergraduate degree and got a master's in social work, though she could never perform the complex tasks. In her 40s and 50s, she was in and out of the hospital, but typically in the 1960s, The mentally ill were hospitalized for a couple of weeks and put on heavy tranquilizers. So I experienced a role reversal at age 19. She started coming to me with her problems, which I didn't particularly want to hear about. And then I spent the rest of her life being her primary caregiver. 
When macular degeneration took her sight in her late 70s, I finally got her on medication. She was very courageous in her aspirations, but debilitated in managing her time, money, and focus. And you said that you have daughters as well. How has the mental illness from your family affected them and the way that they grew up? Knowing the genetic predispositions for myself and my obsessive compulsive husband, I was on high alert from the start of childbearing. My youngest kicked so angrily in the womb, I knew there was going to be trouble. She initially was branded a willful child, and I put her in therapy at age eight. She began psychiatric treatment for anxiety and depression at age 12. And that diagnosis has evolved to OCD and a mild mood disorder. The eldest daughter has generalized anxiety and started therapy at 13. But because they got the right meds and therapy, they've grown into capable, self-advocating adults and loving mothers. Are you able to pinpoint one or two defining moments in your life dealing with mental illness? Well, yes. I think the very worst situation when I totally hit rock bottom in a three-day hold was where I could see my father up in the ceiling, um, you know, through a window. And I was begging him to let me out. Basically, I was hallucinating. I then got checked into the Menninger Clinic, which is noted for dual diagnosis, bipolar and substance abuse for a month. Well, of course, I was put on very heavy drugs and stayed incredibly stupid for the next year. But I've been sober and on improved medication now for the past 20 years. So that was a defining moment. The other, and you'll laugh at this, but it was the evening before my two weddings. I've been married twice. In the middle of the night, I sat bolt upright in bed, literally gasping and gulping for breath. I guess nothing like a wedding to bring on the worst panic attacks ever. So go figure, but it is true. <laughs> You've had a few interactions with police. Can you tell us about a time when your interactions were positive? Sure. Beat cops answered my call for help when I had a paranoia attack outside my psychologist's office and had locked myself in my car. I must have called the dispatcher's office at least eight times in rapid succession. And when they finally arrived, I told them, my employer's security police are following me and they're out to get me. I had seen uniformed police three times that day, and I was just totally petrified and hysterical. But when they came, they walked slowly. They were kind, courteous, and importantly, calm. They took notes and said, well, there might be something to it. Then they left. At least I felt that I had been heard, maybe even believed. Now, in another instance, when my meds were out of whack, I had a car accident, which was my fault, and I was in a full-blown panic attack. I couldn't find my car registration for the police officer, although, of course, it was right there in my glove compartment. They called my husband and the EMTs, and I was confined to the van for over half an hour while they monitored my skyrocketing blood pressure. I had to recount all of my medications and supplements that I housed in two half-gallon bags. I felt humiliated, like a druggie, shivering on the bench. No one offered a glass of water or a blanket or even a kind word. Did that interaction with police that was more negative, did that color how you perceived the police going forward? 
You know, probably initially it did, but the fear and the panic was so great that I barely remember all of the gory details. I don't know that it really made me afraid of the police because I had more instances. I probably had three instances for that one, uh, positive instances for that one negative instance. So they were just doing their job. And after all, the accident was my fault, you know, and they took away my driver's license. And rightfully so, I was in no condition to drive. And I ended up um, having to wait for a year. And then I had to get a note from my doctor saying that I was medically able to drive again, but it was conditional upon taking a driver's refreshing course from Courage Center, which I did do. And the instructor was used to working with people with disabilities. So he was very, very kind, very supportive. I was very petrified, but he helped me get over the hump. And he even went with me on the driver's test. And that's how I got my driver's license back. So I think it was justifiable. And they gave me the help that I needed, both Courage Center and the police and my psychiatrist. And since then, you've done some ride-alongs with police. What, what prompted those ride-alongs? And what do you feel like you learned from those experiences? I started doing the NAMI in our, in our own voice presentations. And after my debut speaking engagement with the local police department, I was asked to do a ride-along. They were very adamant about it. They wanted me to have a better understanding of their experiences, their side of the story with people in mental health crises. So I rode with a seasoned officer who was both a CIT, a critical incident trainer, and an EMT. He told me that in the last six to seven years, there had been a 300 to 400% increase in calls regarding mental illness. I watched him handle a woman with a traumatic brain injury, a woman frustrated by the theft of her personal ID, and a distressed dialysis patient who had pulled out all of her tubes. And I watched as he skillfully used kindness, empathy, and especially humor. I was flabbergasted that, but the humor worked very well to de-escalate the situation. You mentioned that you've spoken to police departments about mental illness and shared your personal story. And can you tell us a little bit about that? What effect do you hope that has on officers? Well, I do a lot of presentations of NAMIs in our own voice personal stories of mental illness to law enforcement. And they do seem to respond to that much better than the videos that they see of stories. The in-person stories are much more impactful to them. I would say um, they seem pretty connected when I speak to them. Many of them, though, I think have felt unsupported over the past couple of years. Uh, what with, you know, the George Floyd thing, everything that has happened. Most of them reportedly are suffering from PTSD. One department that I talked to a year or two ago had seen a couple of cop suicides, and I was sort of surprised by that, but maybe I shouldn't have been. When I talked to them, I can see in their faces that they are very, very weary. And I always then try to thank them for their service. And then I recount my own positive stories of police interaction, as well as my police ride-alongs expertise that he showed me, because he's a good role model for them to emulate. So I hope that they incorporate these methods into their own police work, along with your de-escalation tactics. 
In your presentations at Hazleton Betty Ford Addiction Treatment Centers, you talk about the importance of self-care. Can you tell us how you practice self-care and how important it is for those suffering from mental illness? I think that self-love and self-care are paramount to anyone's recovery. And I have a wide variety of tools and connections that I employ. Of course, you need a top-notch psychiatrist and the right medication regimen. That's paramount. But that's only half of it. One of the most important tools for me is physical exercise, which I do for mind, body, and spirit, about two hours every day. I immerse myself in nature, and I've done this since my 20s, as it brings me solitude and serenity. When you've got racing thoughts as a bipolar, being in nature in the quiet really helps. I write, I read, I do advocacy work, I nurture my children and grandchildren. And importantly, I belong to a depression, anxiety, and grief support group, which takes you out of your own issues to help others. Because when you give, you get back a lot more. Was there a lot of trial and error involved in finding something that worked for you? Oh, yes. It's 70 years of fine-tuning the toolkit. <laughs> I'm 72 years old now. And I have to tell you, I don't know that I... I would say that the, the toolkit's been pretty good about the last five to 10 years. I'd say the grief, anxiety, and depression support group has really helped me more than the 35 years of psycho individual psychotherapy that I had. We're a very close-knit group, and I can always depend upon those folks. So I'd say the last five years, I've nailed it finally. <laughs> Everybody has to find their own way. Everybody has to find their own way. And um, it's trial and error. Good. I'm glad you finally found something that's working for you. Yes, it's true. You're also involved with Isaiah. What's that organization and what's their mission? Isaiah is a multiracial, statewide, nonpartisan coalition of faith communities, including Black barbershops, child care centers, and other community-based constituencies fighting for racial, climate, and economic justice in Minnesota. I'm an organizer in County District 6, pushing a progressive legislative agenda for all Minnesotans in my area. I find it to be very satisfying work. I can't change the world, but I can do something in my own backyard. What all is included in District 6? Where are you located? Hennepin, Hopkins, Wyzetta, Plymouth, generally speaking. Probably a couple other suburbs as well. You're aware of the Friends for a Nonviolent World's policy and a research paper about de-escalating interactions with police and people with mental illnesses. What are your thoughts on it? I totally concur. I was thrilled when I saw that you'd written that paper. I don't know where it's gone. But when a person like myself is in a mental health crisis, we just can't respond rationally. We have minimal or no control. So police can't expect that. So if they, if they can slow down a situation, it will help us tamp down the fear a bit. In addition, using a calm tone of voice, speaking slowly, non-confrontational verbal skills, actively listening, plus using empathy, persuasion, keeping distance, and paying attention to body language, plus giving clear directions as needed 
can go a long way in diffusing a situation. All those things are incredibly valuable. And I hope you get it instigated in all the police forces around here. So with all those things that you mentioned, how do you think police can take all of that and maybe through training or through whatever methods improve their relationships with the mentally ill? How do police put all those ideas into practice? I don't know, but you know, the next time I go out, I'm going on Monday to talk to another police department. I've talked to seven or eight now. Maybe I'll ask them. Maybe I'll ask him and say, hey, here are some de-escalation techniques. Do you guys ever use this? Do you incorporate it into your training? I think it would be a good challenge for me to say that to him because I can speak from the perspective of somebody that that would be very valuable for. So I'll do it. Absolutely. Let us know how that goes. I will let you know how it goes. And as we close... What advice would you give for individuals, non-police officers, about how they can help someone who has a mental illness? You know, it's a hard road. There have been people in my family or people in my church who have disassociated themselves from me because I'm mentally ill. The stigma still runs pretty deep. But if you are open to it, the best thing to do is to be a supportive friend. Look past the mental illness and appreciate them for who they are. Their illness does not define them. Include them in your inner circle, fun activities, whatever they can manage. Be them there for them when it counts. And it will also do a lot for their self-esteem. Oftentimes, we feel very isolated. So people reaching out to be a friend to us is very, very beneficial. And thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I thank you for reaching out to me and, and having me do this interview. I've been speaking with Cindy Suplik about living with mental illness and how she is sharing her story with police departments, treatment centers, and other organizations such as Isaiah. The policy research paper on de-escalating interactions between the police and people with mental illnesses is available at fnvw.org. For listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651 917 0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors. 